Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, it's good to have you guys back with us uh, another week. It's good to see you again. Well, thank you. And uh, for those who are listening, my I got laryngitis a couple of days ago. It's starting to come back, but you, you will hear a little bit of raspiness uh, in my voice. So um, forgive me for that uh, as you listen. This week, guys, we've got a pretty big topic, uh, and the topic is centered around Catholicism. Uh, the, the question is, is Catholicism Christian? Um, and, and I specifically worded it that way because I, I'm not really wanting to answer the question per se today, are individual Catholics Christian? Because I think the greater issue is, what does the Catholic Church teach? What do they believe um, and then uh, by answering that, we will just simply know where people fall in line if they believe the teachings of the Catholic Church. Yeah, that, that sounds good. And um, realizing that a lot of people in the Catholic Church are even um, ignorant of what the Catholic Church truly believes, because that's not something that they're always educated on themselves. So I, I, I can see why there's a lot of confusion over this, and certainly there are a lot of evangelical leaders um, who are considering the two groups really to be just part of the same body of Christ, which I think is a big mistake, especially when we think about the Reformation and and the reason why there was such a break from the church at that time. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, we're only a little over 500 years since the the Reformation, and um, hopefully, you know, all the guys that are listening to us will know what that means. If you're not familiar with that, then that is probably and partially why you're unfamiliar with uh, the issues revolving around the Catholic Church. So you, you need to uh, uh, get some get some good history behind you in that. So you know we're talking about uh, the 1500s with Martin Luther and uh, all of his predecessors and the guys, of course, that came after him, dealing with significant issues that had developed in the Catholic Church. I, I want to throw out a few uh, terms out there. Uh, first, I want to talk about the word Catholic, right? Um, because a lot of guys may be familiar with the Apostles' Creed, uh, it, 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 which I would affirm. If you believe, um, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, it's a creed. Let me just read that, uh, and I'll stop when we get to that particular phrase. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived for the Holy, uh, by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose again from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life ever ast- everlasting. These are things that Christians would affirm, Okay. But there's a phrase in there. I believe in the, quote, Holy Catholic Church. So when talking about Catholicism, you'll hear people say things like, well, everyone's Catholic. Sometimes this creed will come up. So, Eki, is there a difference between how we use the word Catholic when we refer to it in this sense and when we refer to it in terms of the Catholic Church? What's the difference there? 
Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And one of the things that we have to take into account is that words change meaning over time. Um, that's just a universal truth. If you do uh, what we call etymology, that's the study of the meaning of words um, over different spans of time. You, you just see that, um, that that naturally happens. And as an example, I, I remember an example given in my hermeneutics class of um, I think it was one of the queens of England when she was presented a brand new cathedral. She said, this is, uh, she said something to the effect of how awful it is. And we would hear that and think that that's terrible. But what she meant is full of awe. It was awesome. Yeah. It was full of awe. So <clears throat> words change meaning. And notice that uh, as you have read that creed, it said um, the Holy Catholic Church. It didn't say the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And so this brings us to what does the word Catholic mean? Because at that time, when they used that word, it simply just was referring to the church universal. Um, this is, it could have been, it wasn't a label that was meant to identify denomination. It was a label that was meant to identify the nature of those who are part of that church. It's basically everyone who has put their faith into Christ. And at that time, you had believers, of course, throughout history, you had believers in various cities, and each city um, was really considered a, you know, a Catholic church of that city. So, it's mm. basically the, the church universal of that city. Right. And it wasn't until uh, at a later time that the that the that the bishop of um, of Rome, uh, the Catholic Church that was in Rome, decided to uh, take on authority over all of the church, um, but that didn't happen right away. Um, so the the word Catholic, it's just comes from the, the Latin word that essentially just means universal. It is the church universal. We don't treat it that way because now the word Catholic has transformed from being a word that described the kinds of believers who are there to being a technical term to describe the actual Roman Catholic Church. So that's something to keep in mind that when you see those references before, it's not you, you'll rarely see them as Roman Catholic Church. It's simply Catholic as a descriptor for the church itself. Yeah, uh, excellent. I, and and that's a that's something that we need to understand. And so uh, even like you know for for my church we. Uh, read uh, out of the, the 1689 every Sunday, which just really reaffirms uh, particular points of scripture. We may read the Apostles' Creed. Um, I actually changed that language because of this misunderstanding. And so when we would read that mm -hmm. in our church, we do not say the Holy Catholic Church. We simply say the universal church. Uh, because that's exactly what yeah. it means. It just eliminates confusion. Right. So, you know, if someone were to say, well, we're all Catholic, in some sense, that's true. But then I want to know, what do you mean by that word? Or you, do you just mean we're all part of the larger body of Christ, the universal church? Then yes. Um, but yeah, and, and, and another example, if I may jump in, um, just if you just take the look at the Mormon church, um, what do we often call it? The Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints. If you just break out that terminology, are we the Church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Are we also the Church of the Latter-day Saints? Well, the Latter-day refers to today. Um, we are all saints. We are all saved. So just that description, the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints, there's nothing wrong if you look at those words and what they mean in terms of describing us. But the reason why we don't say that is because it has become a technical term to describe the Mormons. So that's a, another example of how you can take a bunch of words that make sense if you just look at them um, word by word, but then when put together, they've now conveyed something different. And over time, that's what has essentially happened with the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And, it, you know, so let's just dive in, brother. Having talked about that, there are 
significant differences between the the Roman Catholic Church, what we now know as the Catholic Church, Catholicism, and the Protestant Church. We are not in the same faith because we fundamentally believe different core doctrines. Uh, th- those core doctrines are totally antithetical to one another. And I think, um, the, you know, 500 years ago, people uh, lost their lives bled and died and burned at the stake because these differences were so important. Here we are, you know, what, 500 and, I don't know, 15 years later or something, whatever it is. Um, And we've, because of ecumenism, uh, we've joined back with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, largely out of ignorance, right? We no longer really understand or know what they teach. Uh, As you've said, a lot of Catholics don't really even know uh, what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Um, mind you, I think I think a lot of Christians don't know what their Bible teaches either. So that that's uh, yeah, that's just how true. It, you know, in both categories. Um, and so if you're if you're a Christian and you don't know your Bible, I wouldn't really expect you to know why the Catholic Church is different. But let's just start with a papal infallibility. That that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, it, it, the Pope actually assumes a role um, where he can speak infallibly, infallibly and with authority that the entire universal church is meant to submit to. Um, and, and we can dissect this a little bit, but uh, may, it, what I'm referring to is a term called ex cathedra, which literally just means from the chair. Um, and, and so when the Pope speaks on any doctrine that falls under the category uh, of faith or morals, okay, then it is meant to, it's said uh, by the Roman Catholic Church that he does so infallibly. In other words, it carries the same authority as Scripture. There are a lot of implications uh, to that. Yeah, that's essentially claiming that the uh, the Pope is is a modern day prophet. That when he speaks on certain matters, um, he has to be treated um, as a prophet. Um, that, that's yeah, you know, and, and just looking at church history, and if you were to compare the beliefs of the various popes, you'll find that not all the popes are even united. And there were times in their history where they had more than one person claiming to be the pope. There was a, what's called the Great Papal Schism. Um, that uh, was going on during the 1400s, I believe, where there were up to three or four different people all claiming to to be the Pope. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a couple of things there. One is the infallibility part. And, and this is so, so important because um, I would never claim to be infallible. Um, you, Nathaniel, would never claim to be infallible. And if we ever came across anyone who claimed to be infallible, we know that that's an immediate red flag because no one is infallible. Um, but in this case, they are claiming their pope is infallible. They're also claiming that their pope is the head of the church. Well, that is distinctly unbiblical because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, right? So th- there's all kinds of issues that stem from that, but a lot of faith that gets put into one person that ends up making his words to be equal or even greater than what the scriptures say. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I, this is just one of those doctrines, uh, those dogmas in the Catholic Church that if you really take a step back and you consider the implications of it, um, you really you really have to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not finished and that the Pope has the ability to add to Scripture. 
Because this doctrine teaches that it is authoritative for the entire yep. universal church. So Baptists, Methodists, Lutheran, you, you name it. Um, and so if that's true, then the Pope has the ability to add to Scripture. I don't know any Christian that would be comfortable saying that. I also have, I, I don't think Catholics would be comfortable saying that either, right? The, the Bible is canonized. Even the Catholic Church has recognized the canon, meaning the Bible is complete. It's done. There's going to be no further additions to that. So just that one doctrine creates a significant issue within the Catholic Church. Let's move on to another one, Mary. Uh, we, we might spend a little bit of time on this one, just kind of depends on where it goes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. it, 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 we can start at the Immaculate Conception. We can talk about praying to Mary. Um, it, 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 maybe let's just start at Immaculate Conception. And yeah. Well, what does that say? Yeah, and and what does that say about Mary? And, and let's let's concede this. Um, Mary was blessed. Um, we we know that um, she she found favor with God. The Bible even tells us that, and um, and she was chosen to bear the the, the her son, uh, the the son of God, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now the immaculate conception, I believe, goes above and beyond that to say that she herself was perfect. Um, but we know that that's not true either, because we know that all mankind was in need of a savior. All mankind was in need of someone to come and pay the penalty for their sins. And that includes um, even Mary, right? Yeah. Um, so to to say that Mary herself was was perfect um, or, or, you know, in, in the words of the Immaculate Conception, to say that she's immaculate or some, somehow divine and to be lifted up that way, you, you have gone outside of what the scriptures actually say about her. Yes. Did she find favor with God? Yes. Well, Moses found favor with God also. And guess what? Moses also needed forgiveness of sins. David also found favor with God. So to find favor with God is not anything that makes her unique from anyone else. Um, but to go above and beyond that and to say that somehow she was perfect uh, without sin, and then to say that she never had children, right? Because we know she did have children. Jesus has brothers. Where did those brothers come from? You know those, uh, and and the Bible mentions it on numerous occasions. Yeah, that um, that that uh, there are brothers, um, brothers of uh, of Jesus Christ that he would um, address at various times. Um, so the, the the Bible testimony. If you just stick to the Bible testimony, you you can't hold to what is believed and, and taught by immaculate conception. Yeah, I mean that that's an incredibly dangerous doctrine, uh, specifically. Um, that that doctrine says that Mary was free from original sin from the moment of her conception. Um, that that is a significant, significant thing. It would mean that Jesus was not the only perfect human, yeah. right? And and we understand that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. But before Jesus uh, came to dwell in human form, this doctrine says that Mary was also born perfect and sinless, and remained that way. Um, and, and so, I mean, this was such a huge thing even in the Catholic Church, and it's interesting because the Roman Catholic Church has not always believed this. In fact, a lot of these doctrines that are, are, are major issues have, are, are relatively new, right? And so, I, I have to believe that a lot of uh, Catholics um, and a lot of Protestants who would embrace Catholicism as, you know, just being a different denomination, just have no idea what these teachings are and where they've come from. Um, in fact, this particular doctrine wasn't even an official teaching of the Catholic Church until 1854. Mm. 1854, <laughs> um, when Pius IX gave it the status of dogma. So, 
this is a very new official teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, you can go way back uh, to 1060, somewhere around there. Um, you had the Franciscans and the Dominicans in the Middle Ages who fought over, actually went to war over this issue. Um, so it wasn't a settled thing then. The Franciscans favored that the Dominicans didn't. Uh, somewhere in between 1060 to 1126. And then you had a scholar named Idmer who came up around that time who said that it, it was possible for Mary to be born without original sin because of God's omnipotence. So basically saying, well, God's all powerful. If he wanted to do that, he, he's, he could, right? Okay, sure. Uh, God can do anything he wants to do. Right, right. Um, but then he would go on to say that it was also possible because of her role as the mother of God, and he tried to make those connections. So it, his teaching kind of caught on, but later on, here comes Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, 1090 to 1153, and then, of course, a little bit later, Thomas Aquinas, both who opposed that idea, um, saying that if she were, in fact, free of original sin at birth, then she would have no need of redemption, and that would make Christ unnecessary. I mean, these are the conclusions we have to come to, right? If there was a person who was born with no original sin after the fall of Adam and Eve, that would make Christ's sacrifice unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah, it would make it unnecessary for her specifically that <clears throat> she lived a perfect life, didn't need the Savior to come. Um, but that is not what the scriptures say. It says that um, no one seeks after God. Um, no one uh, no one knows him. No one does what is good. Um, all have turned aside. And uh, everyone is in need of uh, redemption through Jesus Christ, um, our Lord. Um, so to make an exception for her is to assert something that the scriptures never say. Um, it never says that about her. And the reason why they're going this route, the reason why they want to uh, be, be able to exalt Mary in this way is they want to justify why she is worthy of what they call veneration. They, they'll be careful to say it's veneration. It's not worship. It's the same thing. I mean, when you watch it, when you observe it, you, you can call it whatever you want. That's that's exactly what they're doing. So when you go into uh, like a uh, Roman Catholic church or you see any kind of statues, you will often see Mary um, being the one who's honored and, and not Jesus. And there's even, I remember <clears throat> at least uh, one painting where um, uh, Jesus Christ and, and Mary were pictured together, but Mary is uh, Mary is really the one standing and Jesus is, is the one kind of bowed down before her, honoring her. And, and that's just... That, that's a very unbiblical way of looking at her. And when you look at the examples of the disciples and the apostles uh, of Jesus Christ afterwards, you never see any special attention being given to Mary in that kind of way. The only thing that we see is that John the Apostle was called to take care of Mary from the cross, told to take care of her. Um, but uh, aside from that, there's never any instructions given to the church, uh, never any examples in the book of Acts that exalt her, nothing like that. And, and so we really have to go outside of what the scriptures say and, and to create our own traditions in that way, which doesn't make sense. And another thing I would say this too, all the prophecies, when we think about the messianic prophecies that point forward to Jesus Christ, um, I would argue you see no major prophecies with regards to anything special about the mother, except in Isaiah 7, when it says that the that um, that, that, that it would be a virgin birth, right? Um, that the child would be born of a virgin. But there really is no prophecies in the Old Testament that would really talk about someone who would be as important as how the Roman Catholic Church portrays Mary. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know, um, Mary was blessed by God, but we see that language with other people in the text yeah. that we don't treat the same 
Um, and, and so we, we've got to make those distinctions. The history is just fascinating. And I think it's important for someone who would make that claim, um, it, because when you come to understand that, one, the Catholic Church has not always recognized that, that's a significant deal. Um, and, and then when you see the fighting over it, that's significant. Now, here, I, I want to quote um, uh, another, another guy, Duns Scotus, around the 1300s. Uh, I can't remember the date now, but early 1300s. L- listen to what he said concerning this doctrine. He, he said, quote, that, uh, sorry, he said, it, speaking of Immaculate Conception of Mary uh, and her preservation from original sin, he says that it was, quote, a redemption more perfect than that granted through Christ. That's, that's an amazing statement. That's an amazing heretical statement. Yeah, I mean, that's unfathomable. No. Redemption more perfect than that granted by Christ. Um, that is elevating Mary to God's status, uh, and, yeah. and, and so these are the kind of this is the history of um, where where we see the development of the veneration of Mary. All mm-hmm. of that is well and good. And as you've already brought up, Eki, the the primary issue is that it's just in stark contradiction to Scripture. Look, we have a book, right, that teaches us truth, and yeah. everything we believe has to be. Uh, view through the lens of scripture. You go to 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That doesn't leave room for a single human being to ever have no. been sinless. It just doesn't. Right. Um, Romans three twenty three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, that word all there is very interesting because it just very simply means all. Everyone. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, you thought I was going to give you some great Greek lesson there. Um, it, it, it just means everyone. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we are all sinful. So it is not possible to both believe what Scripture says about humanity and the, our inherent sinfulness and original sin and to believe what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. You have to choose one or the other. You can't be faithful to both, either the Bible or the Catholic Church's teaching. Yeah, and and I think you know just combining what you're saying and what I'm saying, you know, for those who are listening and, and still trying to wrestle with this, I think the bottom line question is why make such a big deal out of someone that the Bible really doesn't make a big deal out of? I mean, aside from saying that she has found favor, and of course, yes, she is the the, the mother of Jesus. But aside from that, you really can't make any kind of argument for any kind of emphasis being placed upon Mary. And yet think about how much of Roman Catholic life is almost centered around the presence of Mary. And and where does this come from? I think think you can trace this to a lot of um, pagan religion um, that often likes to worship uh, kind of this this, this, uh, this, this mother goddess uh, type of uh, figure. Um, You you find this in a lot of uh, political Polygamist, uh, not polygamist, sorry, the polytheistic kind of uh, religions. Um, you see it in, in Greek mythology, um, that the Roman pantheon of gods, um, they had certain female figures that they would lift up as being precious, you know, that uh, because of because of them being this kind of motherly figure. Um, so I think that a lot of that um, a lot of that influence comes from those pagan religions. You just can't trace it out in the scriptures. And even when you go back 
to Genesis 1 and you see the creation account. And when God creates man, male and female, he refers to himself in the plural. God created, God said, let us create man in our image, in our likeness. And then you find out in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ was the creator. Right, that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then he created all things. And you also find out in Genesis that the Holy Spirit was there. So you see the triune God, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is no reference at all to Mary. There is no reference at all to a female figure that needs to be venerated. And when you look at also all the great Old Testament saints, um, all the great prophets, especially the ones that are beloved by Israel, when you think about Moses, when you think about David, when you think about um, the the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, when you think about Daniel, you know, these are men that, you know, the the believers will look back and and lift up as great men of faith. Um, And yet, none of them deserve the kind of treatment that the Roman Catholic Church is giving to Mary. I mean, not even close, right? You know, so there, there's this elevation of prior saints. And, and this is even a broader problem with, I would say, the Roman Catholic Church is all the kind of prayers and, and the acknowledgments that have to happen with all of these different saints. You won't find any precedence for that. So there is nowhere in the New Testament that talks about, well, you need to pray to St. Abraham, or you need to pray to St. Moses, or you need to pray to St. David or something like that. There, there's nothing like that. When you pray, you always pray, you go directly to God. These people in the Old Testament, these great saints in the Old Testament were meant as examples for us, not as symbols of even quote unquote veneration. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, when, when the disciples talk to Jesus about how to pray, you know, we don't have anything included about his mother there. Um, You go on to all the epistles. There's no more reference at all to Mary. And, and again, what we're not saying, absolutely. She was blessed. Uh, but but she does she is on the same level as every other faithful believer in Scripture that we see. She's not elevated um, in in any sense right. because God chose her uh, to to be the vessel by which Christ was birthed. Um, respected, yes. Godly woman, yes. Um, but not to be venerated and elevated uh, because of that certainly was not without sin. Right? Mary yeah. needed. Christ, you know, don't don't forget Christ was fully God, and and so Mary is not the mother of God because God has always existed before all of creation. Mary is a creature. Mary is a created being, um, and and I think when we start talking about worship to Mary, and you made a good point, you can look at an elephant and say it's a turtle, but that doesn't make it so. Um, it's an elephant, no matter what you want to call it. You can say that, um, that in Catholicism, they don't worship Mary, but they most certainly do worship Mary. They yeah. do all of the things that you would do if you were worshiping someone or something. Um, and, and it, you know, just remind you of, you know, what Romans tells us, um, that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And this is exactly what happens. And all ought to be a frightening passage. Um, not just for Catholics, but for Protestants who would try to latch on uh, to Catholics and say, yes, they're just like us. Uh, they're not. The teaching is not uh, a Christian teaching. Well, brother, let's talk about praying to Mary. I mean, that would be the next thing, right? right. I mean, you hear, right. you hear a lot of people say, well, you guys pray to Mary. That's, that's not biblical. And a common response is, well, no, uh, she's just interceding for us. We're just going to Mary 
and asking her to pray to Jesus for us. Well, what do you say yeah, to that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's putting her into the position that Jesus Christ actually put himself into the position of. So we know that Jesus Christ is actually our great high priest. He's the one that intercedes for us. The Bible is actually very explicit about the fact that he, he intercedes for us. Um, you'll find that in various places, but Hebrews comes to mind as well. But um, he is the intercessor. He is the reason that when he died on the cross, the veil to the, the holiest of holy places was torn in two. And, and really, that symbolized this, that previously, they needed the, the high priest of Israel um, to be able to have access to God. And that high priest could only go to God once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he had to go the right way or else he was going to be struck down dead, right? <clears throat> so, when the curtain was torn, it was basically saying that we no longer, longer need to go to a man to access God. We now go through Jesus Christ himself. And so, throughout Scripture, and especially the, the New Testament uh, specifically, when we talk about after Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven, how often do you find Paul using the words in Christ, in Christ, in Jesus Christ? Um, because everything is in Christ. We have access to God through Christ. That's in the book of Ephesians. And, and so, we, we see all of these blessings that we have in terms of being able to come to the Father, through Jesus Christ. To say that we need to come to Mary, you will, uh, once again, you will not find that described anywhere. Um, you won't see that as an example. Look at all the examples of prayer. Every single letter, just about every single letter that Paul writes, he opens up with a greeting, but somewhere in there, he reveals to you what he's been praying for, hmm. right? And, and when you look at those prayers, you don't see anything about going to Mary. You know, it's it's the, the prayers are in Christ uh, to God yep. uh, for the people of God. So the the examples just don't uh, just don't rhyme with that. And <clears throat> you know, also as we think about this practice of praying to Mary, think about um, also just how Mary is referred to and what kind of attributes that she's given. So not only do people consider her to be kind of the intercessor, which is actually Jesus Christ is the one who intercedes uh, between us and God. Um, but she's also called uh, the co-redemptrix. So Jesus Christ is our redeemer. Um, by calling her co-redemptrix, they're saying that she's also a redeemer with Jesus Christ. But nowhere does the scripture say that Mary redeemed us. It was it was Jesus Christ that redeemed us. And a lot of people that pray to Mary, one of the most um, frequent prayers I hear um, says the words, um, hail Mary full of grace, right? Well, the, the word hail is, is a word of exaltation and honor that is typically reserved for a king, right? You, you hail a king, you hail God, you hail our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Mary is not given that kind of authority, uh, authority position anywhere in scripture. But then to also to follow that up by saying full of grace, well, no, the book of John says Jesus Christ is the one that's full of grace and truth. Nowhere is any man or woman being described as being full of grace and truth, maybe gracious as a fruit of the spirit, but to say, hail Mary, full of grace, it, you're really, if you replace Mary with Jesus, then that statement makes sense, um, but it really should only be reserved for the Godhead themselves. Yeah, and it, you know, and what we're talking about is the the term a mediator. You know, they yeah. they look at Mary as being a mediator. Well, why is that important? Go to First Timothy two five. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That that's it. And so it, you can you can it, you could say that, uh, and they often do that. Well, we don't pray to Mary. Uh, we're going to her, and they'll, they'll describe the role of a mediator. But here we have in Scripture very clearly stated that there's only one mediator. There's no co-anything with Christ. 
There's there's no co-savior, no co-redeemer, no co-mediator. There, there's nothing. It's Christ and Christ alone. Um, and so we don't go to Mary. We don't go to you know we don't we don't go to the Apostle Paul. We don't go to Peter. I mean they're all dead. They don't hear our prayers. Um, yeah. We pray to Christ and Christ alone. To go to anyone else, right, is to be in direct disobedience and defiance um, to what the Scripture says, yeah. and, and to elevate Mary, as you've said. Right. Uh, Ephesians 2.18 says, for through him, and the him referring to Jesus Christ, through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so you see the full Trinitarian Godhead, but also Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 starts off with, um, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. But starting in verse 4, it says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who of, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you, you see reference there to the spirit. You see reference there to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see a reference there to God, the Father, the, the, the body of Christ. Uh, but you don't see a reference there to the mother. You don't see a reference there to to Mary. So once again, when you see these passages that really focus upon who we are in Christ, the access that we have to God through Christ, what we share together as a body of Christ, what's lifted up are the doctrines that we see in scripture, which does not include how we are to regard Mary. Yeah. And, and so there are a lot of issues here and they're significant. And I think they're far more significant than what a lot of American Christians uh, w- would understand. But as we're talking through, I hope some of that's coming to light. I mean, you're effectively, you might as well just pray to Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. Um, yeah. you, you'll get the exact same result. And that might sound offensive, uh, but in reality, Mary is an idol and worshipped and elevated to the status of godhood in the Catholic Church. You see this in the language if you stop, as you've said, to understand what the words mean, and then just look at how uh, she's treated, um, and then go to Scripture, because ultimately uh, the history is good. We can dissect the words and the language. We need to do that. Um, but ultimately, you come to Scripture, and you see that it's in direct um, contradiction to what we have in Scripture. Well, I, I want to move on a little bit. We've talked about just some significant issues. Uh, I really want to kind of um, switch focuses a little bit now and talk about really for us what just solidifies the fact that Roman Catholicism is an entirely different religion. And that's when we start getting into their views of justification. Yeah. Um because their views of justification are entirely different than what we see in just plain scripture. These are the things that the reformers fought. These are things that the reformers died for. Um, these are the things that matter significantly. Uh, at, when you get down to it, the Catholic Church absolutely teaches salvation by merit or by works. Um, not only that, but they specifically reject uh, justification by faith alone. And I've got several um, uh, uh, of their actual doctrinal points that I want to talk through and, and read so that people can understand, because a lot of people say, well, the Catholic Church doesn't believe that. Okay, well, uh, th- th- these are from the Council of Trent, the official positions of the Catholic Church that have never been revoked or rescinded. This is what the Catholic Church believes. Now, if someone is professing to be a Catholic and they don't believe these things, then they're actually not Roman Catholic. 
Yeah. They, they've been tricked. They've been duped uh, into believing that they are, but they're believing something without even knowing what it is that the Catholic Church teaches. So can someone be a Catholic and not know or believe these things? Well, no. Can they say they're Catholic and not believe these things? Yes, they can say that. Um, and, and, and so when we're dealing with people, I, I think our, the grace comes in from us um, to understand that there could just be an intellectual disconnection, right? People may think they're Roman Catholic, and then when you start talking about these things, they don't, well, they probably don't even know what they are, to be honest. Um, but if they don't believe these, you can't, by definition, be Catholic. But let's just talk about some of these. Uh, before I get on that, I, I just want to hit baptism real quick um, because it starts. So if you go to Article 2, number 1992 in the uh, current Catholic catechism, it says this, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. Mm. So what did I just say there? Right. And, and we have to stop and think about what do we mean by justification? And uh, the book of Romans says quite a bit about justification, but just to summarize, justification is the legal declaration that uh, we are righteous before God. Um, that, that is what it means to, to be justified. But the justification, that the declaration of righteousness, does not come by any kind of work. It comes by faith. Uh, Romans is extremely clear on that. So if it says it comes by actual physical baptism, um, that's a problem because it's not emphasizing what truly um, brings us uh, justification, which is faith, but it's emphasizing an actual work that we do. And and there's also the the, the problem of, well, what happens with infants who get baptized, right? I, there's Are we saying that they are saved? And the Roman Catholic Church would teach that there is uh, like a dispensation of grace that's given to the, the, the child just for, for being baptized. Um, so, no, that, that's, that's hugely problematic because the Bible makes very clear that salvation comes by faith alone. The book of John, which I have been preaching through, the whole point of that book is so that you would come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have eternal life in his name. And uh, John will hammer that point again when he writes his individual letters, um, and, and you see that throughout the scriptures, even as you read uh, from the Apostle Paul. So, yeah, to, to say that, once again, we are in contradiction with what the Bible actually says, and uh, and, and we are turning uh, salvation into something that uh, it's it's not, which is tied to a specific work. Yeah, and this is uh, but this was a big problem. You think back to John Wycliffe. Uh, I, I really I, I love John Wycliffe's story and, and the reformers. Uh, these were things that he often dealt with. Uh, you, you know, you would baptize your infants, and the church would you weaponize that. If you didn't baptize your infants, then they would go to hell. Um, and so the official teaching is very much that salvation is conferred in baptism. Um, so what do you do with the one who dies prematurely before, well, before baptism? Uh, well, according to the Catholic Church, if you actually believe it, you would have to say that they go to hell. Well, what does the Bible teach about salvation and how it comes? 
So we have all these questions. But then we get into um, the sixth session of the Council of Trent, which deals specifically with all of their points of justification. Uh, these, these are, and, and we'll just go through a few of them, but this makes it crystal clear that you cannot both be, uh, again, Roman Catholic and Christian. You have to choose one. And so if there are people out there who say, yeah, okay, well, I'm Roman Catholic and I want to be Roman Catholic, then this is what you have to choose to believe. You also just need to know that you're in opposition to Christianity. Um, so uh, let me just start with one of these. Uh, and I've, I've got a few here. I don't know if we'll get through all of them, but uh, th- this is point number nine. And I'll read them more. That way you can go and look these up, right? So um, point number nine on the sixth session of justification says, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Now, it's kind of old language, so let's just restate that in modern English. Um, if anyone says that faith alone, the sinful are justified, he's to be damned. That's yeah. basically what this is saying. Yeah. Um, anathema, to be cursed, to be damned, comes from the Greek word. Uh, at one stage in the Catholic Church, it was used to be excommunicated, which you would also understand that to be you know, doomed or, or damned. This is the official teaching of the Catholic Church. So if you believe in being saved by faith alone, without works accompanying it, the Catholic Church says you are damned. And, and um, tell us the year that uh, that, that was written. Uh, the council the time period. You know, I don't. When was it? You might have to remind me. I don't remember. <clears throat> yeah, the, the Council of Trent. Um, it would have been around the mid 1500s. Um, so that uh, and the significance of that being that it came after the, um, really the the start of um when the Reformation really started to take off, which was 1517 with Martin Luther nailing the uh, the, the theses, uh, the 95 theses on the Castle Door of Wittenberg, and by the time you get to the mid 1500s. The Reformation is exploding. It's taking place. Um, now the Catholic Church can't stop it. And, um, and Bibles are being translated and printed um, in, in languages that the Roman Catholic Church does not want to see them printed and distributed in. Um, so you, you have this explosion of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's it's only when they come together for the Council of Trent. And I believe overall it took place over a period of like it's decades, a few decades, I believe. Yeah, about, <clears throat> about 20 years. So I, I just looked, I was trying to find where the sixth session was but between 1545 and 1563 was the, yeah. the various meetings right right so right there right in the middle of the 1500s and and that council really came together in order to combat uh, what was happening with the protestant um revolution the, the reformation that was taking place and a lot of people who were just leaving the church and so then it was only then that they made that statement that if you believe that salvation is by faith alone then you are accursed. And, and that is essentially equivalent to the Pharisees uh, telling people that if you follow Jesus Christ, you're following after someone who performs works by the power of Satan, right? Or, or someone that's uh, saying that Jesus Christ himself is is accursed and not someone who um, who is the son of God. So they, they essentially went against uh, the teaching of the Bible in order to stop a movement, but that very teaching is at the very heart of what it means to be saved. 
Yeah, and in and in this just this one section, there are thirty three points from the sixth session on justification. Uh, thirty three points, and and I, let me go to the next one that I want to read, and I'll I'll try to just communicate this in English vernacular, and you look up it verbatim. But point number fourteen basically says that if anyone says a man is truly absolved from his sins and justified uh, because he believed himself to be absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but by the one who believes himself to be justified, and that is by faith alone, absolution and justification are affected, let him be anathema. So here it is again in point 14, if anyone believes that he is saved because of faith alone, let him be damned. Um, Again, another point, um, let, let me read a couple more. Uh, so I had talked about each one individually. Point number 15, if anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound to faith, is bound of faith to believe that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate, let him be anathema. In other words, if you have a surety of salvation, you are to be damned. Do you get that? That's, that- that's amazing. That's amazing, and and that's that's teaching that you um, that that you can't have assurance of your salvation. It's certainly not by faith. But uh, when you read, for instance, the letter of First John, John writes that in order that you may know that that you are saved, so you can have assurance of faith. Uh, the the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have eternal life. So that that's to to remove kind of the certainty and and really the simplicity of the gospel um, itself, which which is a, a real crying shame. And and when we share the gospel, and here's the thing: so some may be hearing this and saying. Well, you know, we, um, we, we say that when we emphasize so much of um, how salvation comes by faith alone, we're also saying that people can just live however they want, that they can be free and, and, uh, and, and continue to sin and all that. And, and really, that's what the Roman Catholic Church is fighting against, that you have to continue to, to do good works. But there's a huge difference between where we stand and, and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They teach that you have to continue to do good works in order to continue to justify yourself um, before God. Whereas um, we teach what the Bible teaches, and in, in that um, it's your faith in God that justifies you once and for all. And the good works are not good works that earn our salvation. The good works are the fruit of salvation. So that once we were saved, we were saved for the purpose of doing good works. It's a huge difference than saying that, you know, unless you continue to do good works, then you are not saved. And so salvation would be by both faith plus works, which by the way, Paul himself says, if it's at all by works, then it's not by grace at all, right? Yeah. So so that's, um, it's it just, it tears apart the, the grace of the gospel itself, and it turns it into a works-based salvation, which then makes our faith no different than any other faith. Yeah, and, and I, that's the huge distinction. The Christian faith teaches that because of your salvation, you will do good works. The Catholic Church teaches if you want to keep or maintain your salvation, you must do good works. Two totally different systems. And it, by the way, you the, the passage you just mentioned from Romans 11, 5, 6, I mean, we're reading these. Listen to what the Apostle Paul actually says. I mean, we have a book. Let's go to it. Uh, 11, 5 through 6 says, In the same way, then, there has always come to be the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, salvation he's meaning, it is no longer on the basis of works 
since otherwise grace is no longer grace. In other words, it, it has to either be one or the other. You can't yeah. mix them. The, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave any room for mixing those things. Uh, an- another point uh, in the sixth session, point number 24, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification attained, yeah. <clears throat> but not a cause of the increase, let him be anathema. Wow. So, they, yeah, they so, just, so we, are, we are accursed. They just accursed us. They just accursed us because we literally just read that. And they also just accursed the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have, um, for anyone wondering as you're listening to this, they have never reversed this. Um, they have never gone back and, and um, tried to correct or clarify this. Uh, this continues to be their dogma to this day, even if you don't hear them talking about it. If they have really changed their beliefs, they, they should go back and correct those words to make them more biblical. But then there's another problem. Papal infallibility, which we talked about earlier. If the Pope is infallible in what he says in the matters of, of the church and of the faith, then those words um, are also infallible. They're inerrant. <clears throat> but uh, when comparing them to Scripture, that cannot be the case. So we are calling God a liar, um, essentially, if we uphold uh, those doctrines. And obviously, we don't want to do that. So the question is, what do we believe? Do we would believe what a group of men claim to be as infallible and authoritative, or do we believe what God has given us as his scriptures? Yeah, and, and, and they keep going, right? I said, like I said, there are 33. Let me read another one, point 27. If anyone says that there is no mortal sin, but that of infidelity or unbelief, or that grace once received is not lost by any other sin, however grievous or enormous, save that by that of infidelity, let him be anathema. In in other words, you can lose your salvation if you commit what the Catholic Church would deem to be a mortal sin. Now, there's a various list. You'd have to go look those up. I don't have them all memorized. Uh, But just to give you an example, um, if you got totally drunk and plastered and then got hit by a bus, uh, before you repented or felt sorry, you would have died in a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not mistaken, if you uh, intentionally don't come to Mass, uh, that would be a mortal sin. Um, but in any case, it doesn't really matter what they define as being a mortal sin. The point is, if you believe that um, sin does not cause you to lose your salvation, you're to be anathematized. Yeah, um, yeah so, that, that's destroying the, uh, the, the security of salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, point 30, and this will be the last one I read, uh, but I just want to give a plenty of examples. It's not just the one issue on justification. They took the time to rehash this in many different ways, 33 times exactly. Uh, number 30 says, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sender, the sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, then there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next purgatory before the entrance of the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. Mm. So, so in other words, if you believe that when you're saved, Christ has paid the penalty, you're done. There's nothing else to be paid. He completed it all. If you say that, you are to be damned. 
Romans A1, um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And and we know that it is repeated multiple times that when Jesus Christ paid the, cro- the, paid the price on the cross, he paid it once for all. It was a one-time sacrifice for all time. There is no more penalty that, that needs to be paid. If you say that there is a remaining penalty, then you are saying that the um, sacrifice given by Jesus Christ was insufficient, um, that um, and then not only was it insufficient, but it's only made complete by your works. So Jesus' works are made complete or perfect by your works, which is obviously if you read the Bible and understand it, you you cannot reconcile that with anything that the, the Bible says. Yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting because if you look at the lives of a lot of Catholics, even by their own doctrine, most of them are going to hell. In fact, all of them are yeah. going to hell because the doctrine. The implication of the doctrine is that you have to live a perfect, by your own choice, in your own power, a sinless life. And so let me just ask, you know, if you're Catholic, have, have you lived a sinless life? You don't lie, cheat, steal, cuss, have bad motivations, never commit any moral sins. Um, and so because if you have done any of that, then your own church system condemns you. And uh, for those who would say, well, you know, that's what purgatory is for. Um, find that teaching in the Bible. I mean, I mean, again, um, this is all a works-based system. Uh, this is a religion based on works, and, and that's really kind yeah. of the point of going over that. It, 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 and here's a problem. Let me, you, you know, I, you went through uh, preaching the book of Ephesians recently. I'm preaching through it now. Uh, let me just read Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. And, and let's just compare this with the kind of things we're hearing uh, the Catholic Church teaches. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath, just as the rest. I, I want to continue, but let me just stop there and point out that Mary falls in that category. Yeah. What does it say she was before a child of wrath? Not of perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me keep going. But God, uh, that's the most beautiful phrase you'll hear, but God. Yeah. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ten verses destroys the entire Catholic Church's teachings. Yeah, those are beautiful ten verses. That's that's really the biography of everyone who's ever been saved by Christ. Um, it describes where you were, it describes uh, God's gracious work, and describes the fact that um, that you are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. But it certainly emphasizes over and over again in verses 8 and 9, 
in really five different ways that it's all God, not you, all God, not you, all God, not you. <clears throat> Just reread those two verses over and over again. And then after seeing how it is emphasized that this is completely a work of God and not anything that you do, then the very next verse talks about, okay, but you are saved in order that you may do the things that God has called you to do. And so it's 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 a very simple um, simple statement. And when we think about um, the whole, what you said before, that basically no one is saved under Catholic theology. Certainly, we understand that because it's works based. But but even if you were to try to justify it, you know, the Catholics have to do an ongoing um, confession. By the way, and confession is not to God; it's to a priest. So you're going to a different kind of mediator in order to confess your sins. So you you confess those things, but they're only off of your plate until you commit them again. And if you happen to die after having created, uh, have, have, after having committed a mortal sin, well, that that's that's a big issue. How do they get around this? Well, they get around this through another unbiblical doctrine, which is purgatory. You know, this idea that uh, you can be, you know, you can go to a place where you can work off your sins or. Even better, someone else can work off your sins for you. That's the whole idea of indulgences. So people can actually purchase indulgences to purchase um, the the way to, to heaven for those who are caught in purgatory. And that's exactly what Martin Luther ran into when he started to um, started to his eyes started to be open to just the um, to just to the corruption and and the unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this was his big issue with uh, Tetzel, right? I can't remember his first name. Uh, John Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, right? Uh, the Catholic Church uh, basically um, it gave him the authority to go around, uh, and you know, we hear the coin, the phrase, "As soon as the coin in the bowl rings, a soul from purgatory springs," right? And the idea was you can buy your loved one out of purgatory. I, I shouldn't. We shouldn't have to make too many comments on that. Just consider no. that the doctrine of purgatory at one stage, you could just very simply make a payment and it's no longer existent. Th that should tear down uh, anyone's um, belief and uh, trust in the doctrine of purgatory. The Catholic Church just wanted their money, right? Um, so you pay enough money and all of a sudden purgatory is gone. Uh, but that Ephesians passage, I mean, let me just go back to point 24, Right. Because the only authority we have when when we talk about, you know, Eki and I or anyone else about the fact that the Catholic Church is the world's largest Christian cult um, is the authority we have in Scripture. Again, their point 21 is, is if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and increased through good works, but rather says that it's a fruit and a sign of justification. Let them be, be anathema. Oh. We just read you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that explicitly says the very mm -hmm. thing they are damning. Um, and this is very interesting. So for, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to debate that uh, there are Catholics out there who want to honor and revere God, but let me just ask you this, or maybe, and maybe we should ask this of our Catholic friends, you get to that passage and there is a reason, a specific reason, that none of this is due to our works. We can't earn our salvation, and the reason we, we can't earn our salvation, Ephesians says that you were dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You didn't have the ability to respond to any external stimuli. God had to do that for us. Not only did God have to do the work 
of regenerating for us. But then he uh, is the only one that does that work. And the reason we're told is found in verse nine, so that no one may boast. Exactly. This is the fact that if you, God doesn't share his glory with anyone. This is the greatest reverence, reverential position a believer can have um, is to give God all the glory that's due to him. So this is why your works mean nothing, um, because it takes away the glory of God. This is the very reason it says so that no one can boast. You can't boast that you came to Christ. You can't boast that you stay in Christ because it's all the work of God. And so at the end of the day, you have to choose between Christianity, between Christ or the Pope. That's your option. You have to make the choice. And I would say, just as we see in Scripture, make make the choice today who you'll serve. Will you serve the Pope or will you serve Christ? Because you can't have both. Um, Let me read one more passage that just really... The last one I'll go to um, in in Acts 16. Do you, do you have any comments on that before we move on, brother? No, no, no. That's that's good. We talk about salvation by faith alone, by belief in law uh, alone. We've seen the scriptures. We've seen that they contradict what the Catholic Church teaches. L- listen to the story. It's a little lengthy, um, but 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 I think it's important. So Acts 16, uh, 25 through 34 says, Now about midnight, Paul and Silas, were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. That's great. Where were they? And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So they're here in prison, right? So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfashioned. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, thinking that the prisoners had escaped. Now, why would he do that? Okay, because uh, the Romans would assume he had some part in it. Really, it was a deterrent to keep soldiers from letting prisoners out for whatever reason. So rather than uh, experience the wrath of Nero, he was just going to kill himself. Goes on to say, but Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we all are all here. And the jailer asked for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas after he had brought them out and said, now remember what was happening before this, the Apostle Paul, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. So the soldier falls before him and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, now here's the important part of the discussion. Are we about to hear validation of the Catholic Church's teaching or of validation of what the Catholic Church condemns? Well, let's just see the next verses. 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it right there. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that couldn't <clears throat> be more simple. Yeah. And, and um, the book of Acts provides us with so many examples of the gospel being given by the apostles to various people in various cities, various settings. And it always comes down to believe, believe. And, and it's not tied to the leader of the church, um, whether you follow him or not. You know, it's it's not tied to uh, that uh, specific denomination. Obviously, at that time, they really just had uh, the, the church. There wasn't any confusion about uh, denominations. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, you, you just don't see Catholic doctrine when it comes to salvation anywhere in the scriptures. And in fact, you know, the challenge I would have for anyone that goes to Mass 
Um, just look around at what they do during uh, a mass service and ask yourself how many, how much of what you see in mass actually comes from scripture? How much of what you see Catholics doing as part of their Catholic walk actually comes from scripture? You know, there's, <clears throat> there's a, uh, this author, and I forgot his name now, but he was a former Catholic priest and uh, he gave his life to, to Christ and he started writing a series of books that were meant as apologetics in terms of how to how to share the faith with those who are uh, of Catholic um, Catholic faith. And, and he shares this, that one of the exercises he does, he goes to a Catholic church, he, he lays out a table and puts like nine different cards on there that re- each of them represent all these different sacraments of the church, you know, like the, the, the Eucharist, confession to a priest, uh, attending mass, baptism, all those kinds of things. And as people are coming out of the church, he'll ask them, I want you to look at the table and pick how many things are needed in order for you to be saved. And, uh, and then he has another card that he keeps hidden. And the card that he keeps hidden is faith in Christ alone. So he has all the sacraments. He hides faith in Christ alone behind his card, behind his back. And, and what he finds is that most people will pick a, a, a plurality of cards, sometimes all the cards, and, and not one of them will ever point out, wait a second, where's, where's the faith in Christ? Where is that? And, and that's just to illustrate this, that those who are going to Catholic churches, they're, they're not being taught. Um, and, and, and if they are being taught, they're being taught Roman, dog, Roman Catholic dogma rather than what's actually clearly in the scriptures. And then also, <clears throat> for every Catholic I've ever had a conversation with, and I ask them, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Well, what, what must you do to, to get to heaven? Um, I've never met a Roman Catholic. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I've never met someone of the Roman Catholic faith who has ever been able to express to me confidence that they're going to heaven. They often usually say, well, you just have to do as much good as you can and hope for the best. Well, that, that's that's what Satan wants you to think. You know, Satan wants you to think it, that there's no assurance that that this is all about doing more and more good, rather than recognizing the ultimate good doer, um, the, the ultimate doer of good. And that was Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and paid the the, the most divine, um, made himself into the most divine sacrifice in order to give us um, our salvation, which is by faith alone. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we come back to that initial question. And uh, the answer is Roman Catholicism is not Christian. It's not Christian. Um, And and then I think that lets us answer the next question rightfully. Um, If someone is following the teachings of the Catholic Church, they too are not Christian. Um, That is not to say that someone cannot be uh, an immature, young in the faith person who when asked, would say, yes, I'm believing in Christ alone for my salvation, um, that person could exist in the Catholic Church. But we need, to, we need to be very careful and not say Catholics are Christian because they're not. That would be like saying Mormons are Christian. No. Um, could there be someone in the Mormon Church caught up in the deception who is a believer? That's possible. Uh, but here's the deal. If that's true and they truly are a believer, they will come out of that system. Uh, because they won't be able to stay in it um, in in perpetuity. And the same, I would say, for Catholics. The Roman Catholic system is a mission field. These are our neighbors, our loved ones, our family, our friends, people who we don't know who are caught up in a system that is taking them straight to hell. Um, We aren't linking arms with them. We we shouldn't be calling them Christians. If we really want to love 
the Catholics, then we need to be proclaiming the gospel um, of salvation through Christ alone to them. Uh, because without that, um, they will work and they'll work and they'll work and they'll find out in the end that what they've done is what the Bible says, nullify the work of the cross and they'll spend eternity in hell. Um, and so, I, I, you know, in the day and age we live in, we, we don't want to say that uh, we, ecumenism wants everyone to be a part of God's family, um, but that's just not the case. If you, if you, as you've seen, and as a Catholic church does, specifically damn the teachings of Scripture. I mean, isn't that ironic? They, no. they literally anathematize the very teachings of Scripture, the apostles' teachings, uh, and then profess to be Christian, but that's just not true. Um, and so I would say when we're dealing with Catholics, uh, th- there are two um, major sides, d- ditches that we need to stay out of. We need to stay out of the ditch that just says, um, you're damned, you're going to hell, and that's it, because that is neglecting uh, our own um, commission, right? They're a mission field. We shouldn't want to see anyone go to hell. And so, uh, if we engage them, we should engage them with a heart that says, I, I want this person to leave knowing the true gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we have to stay away from the one ditch. The other ditch we have to stay away from is embracing them and treating them as though they're actually Christian, because that is also not true if they are following the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is an enemy. The Pope is an antichrist. Um, he, he's not friendly to Christ. He's an enemy of the church. He's an enemy of God. He's an enemy uh, to Christianity. And I think to play with that in any way to try to, you know, in the Southern Baptist world, exercise the 11th commandment is not only dangerous, but perhaps even in some cases blasphemous. Um, yeah. So we need to view it that way. Um, and so rather than stay away from those two ditches. And so I think if we are faithful to scripture, uh, we need to recognize what the Catholic church teaches and then say, look, this is a person, maybe whom I love, maybe who I know, maybe who's my neighbor. And we treat them just like anyone else who doesn't know Christ or in any other cult. Um, our heart should long to see them come to worship the one true God, uh, through Jesus Christ and through faith alone. Yeah, there, there's uh, well said, and there's two last points that I would want to leave the audience with um, our listeners. Um, one, you, you've mentioned ecumenism a few times, and ecumenism is is basically this movement of trying to bring all these different denominations together to be more inclusive about who's actually in the family of God. Um, so a lot of people are saying you're dividing too much. Uh, we should be working together with these other faith groups and and recognize that we're all children of God. That's essentially ecumenism. Um, but <clears throat> here's the thing: you cannot, and and it's it looks good. It looks good to try to be more inclusive. But it is impossible to be more inclusive without restricting the free grace of the gospel itself. Okay, let me say that again. It is impossible to be more inclusive without restricting the grace of the gospel itself. Because when you start to become more inclusive, now you're making the gospel, you're saying it's okay for the gospel to be works-based. And if it's works-based, now the grace of the gospel gets lost, that the free gift of the gospel gets lost um, as a result. The second thing I want to point out, and and I've come across people who have said that they've ministered to someone who came from the Roman Catholic Church, they gave their life to Jesus Christ, but they didn't want to leave the church. So they went back to the Roman Catholic Church with the idea that they're going to um, be a light uh, within the Roman Catholic Church to them. The, The problem with that is this, that 
we are not simply called to respond in faith to the gospel, but for those of us who are saved, we're called to walk in the works of God, which means that we are to engage in the Great Commission. We are to make disciples of all the nations, and that includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but also to teach them to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded you. And, and there's no way that a brand new believer can actually go to a Roman Catholic church and actually be fed and edified with the Word of God to be instructed with how they're, they're supposed to grow and act and walk. And, and how they're to, to, uh, to glorify the, the Lord Jesus Christ and become more like Christ. So at the very best, even if within these faiths, um, there are genuine believers, and I do believe that there are genuine believers in, in these false denominations who don't know any better at the time, um, but even if you were to say that they would stay there for the rest of their life, um, the, the problem I would have is that they're not growing, and if they're not growing, they're, they're not contributing, contributing anything to the kingdom of God. So for those who are in Christ, you must be at a Bible teaching church so that you may grow in accordance to the way God wants you to grow into the image of his, his blessed son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a believer, I mean, you're supposed to be a part of a believing body. So you fundamentally could not stay um, in, in the Catholic system. Yeah. Um, you, you, would, you would have to knowingly and willingly uh, exercise against the the faith to participate in what they're doing, and we just can't do that. So th- those are good words. Uh, I appreciate appreciate that. And um, listen, guys, I hope that this was helpful. Uh, I, our hope is, I, I think, twofold: one, to help people understand that Roman Catholicism is not Christianity; it is the world's largest Christian cult. And secondly, um, our attitude then, knowing that towards the Catholics should be to view them as people who desperately need the gospel. We'll leave you with that. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.